Welcome to the AFP Report. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. The AFP Report is a podcast series where I will be interviewing reporters and contributors to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, as well as other special guests. Please consider subscribing to the newspaper if you are not already. Subscription details can be found at AmericanFreePress.net. And today I'm joined by Kat McGuire, a grassroots truth and freedom activist based in New York City. All right, Kat McGuire, welcome to the program. How are you today? I'm doing really good, John. Thank you for asking me on. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. You are an activist based in New York, I believe, correct? Yes, New York City, two blocks from Times Square is where I live. Wow, incredible. Okay, well, very cool. Um, now, you do maintain a Substack page called Uppity Upstart, and I'll have that linked when I post this podcast program. And on your Substack page, you describe yourself as a grassroots truth and freedom activist in opposition to the globalist agenda. And I know I've heard you on False Flag Weekly News with Dr. Kevin Barrett, and we're also both involved in an email group affiliated with many members from the San Diegans for 9-11 Truth Group, which I have been a part of for a very long time. I no longer live in San Diego, but I moved to San Diego in 2009, in the summer of 2009. And within like a month of, of me living there, I came across the 9-11 Truth Group and have been just totally fascinated with the subject of 9-11 ever since and have learned a lot from the San Diegans for 9-11 Truth Group, which sadly doesn't appear to be all that active, at least compared to you know how they used to be. We used to have like a week or a, sorry, a monthly meetup, and we'd often uh, screen documentaries and have various speakers come in and address the San Diegans for 9/11 Truth Group. And it was a very, very well organized and dedicated 9/11 Truth Group. So um, that's cool that you're, you know, you're familiar with many of the individuals associated with that group, as am I. So um, to get started, can you kind of just uh, introduce yourself and talk about your activism? Talk about your experience and involvement in the alternative media, and then we can kind of go from there. Okay, sure. Um, well, I've been an activist um, for many years since I was teething um, in the early 90s. I was very involved in um, anti-racism and feminism and animal rights. Um, and then I took um, sort of a hiatus, um, had to earn some money. And in that time period, 9-11 happened, but um, I was just sort of coasting and paying attention to my leaders, uh, people like Noam Chomsky and uh, Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman, and they weren't saying anything about 9-11. You know, that wasn't about much. So I'm like, all right, that's that's not about anything. And um, I didn't get a consciousness about 9-11 until um, I, I believe it was around 2010. So I was really late to the game, but um, I picked up very quickly, uh, did massive amounts of research and feel like I am was totally up on 9-11. But what it did for me was open up a whole new door using the methodology, if you will, of just asking questions, interrogating, not accepting at face value what I was told, what my leaders had, leaders quote unquote, had told me I accepted at face value, no longer doing that and questioning myself. All other kinds of doors opened, um, some of the most important of which were an understanding of World War I and World War II, and that those were, um, is it, they make 9-11 look like a little white lie. So um, 
I definitely got a, a, a strong consciousness, did a lot of uh, researching all manner of things, and um, started getting much more active um, around um, 9-11 um, and just being out there more um, with um, going after the deep state. Um, I put on panels with um, people might know, uh, what's it called, the Left Forum. Um, I helped produce panels for two or three years, and we would continually get kicked out because we were too radical for the uh, Left Forum. Left Forum, formerly called the Socialist Scholars Conference, is the biggest gathering of leftists, um, an annual gathering um, in, in the country. So, um, And they would typically have it in New York, and we would have panels. So um, I did that for a while, and then we got pretty much kicked out, and I gravitated to alternative media um, for other avenues. I put on a, um, produced a show called uh, Deep Truth. It's still online, deeptruth.info. Um, 25 panel uh, panelists spoke. We had about six or seven panels. I pretty much put that whole thing on myself, which was uh, really good. And then lately now, um, with COVID rearing its ugly head, a whole different ball game of consciousness has um, come forward because um, all of my liberal left friends um, have just either abandoned me or we just parted ways amiably, uh, some not so. Um, I consider myself a leftist who left the left, but that doesn't mean I went right. I mean, that's the binary uh, elementary understanding. Oh, you must be for Trump. No, not necessarily. I'm. I look at the issues now, and where do people stand on issues? So I've I've been very active in um, the medical freedom movement, which I kind of see as uh, the truth movement 2.0. And I'm an organizer. I have been an organizer here in New York, putting on the protests, the rallies, um, demonstrations, and marches. Um, one of the main um, people who put those on. A lot of people are active, but in terms of in the street. Um, I have done a lot with that. And then it's kind of cooled out because they're giving us a break. <laughs> they're soon going to hit us again. And so now I'm, um, I've am i been out in the streets um, uh, protesting um, the um, assault on, uh, on Palestine, what's going on there. We've had a lot of um, marches and demos here in uh, New York. And so that's a lot of my focus. And my other big focus is the Great Reset, New World Order, and what they're doing. So um, I, I, I keep pretty busy. Um, my activities at this point right now are more uh, writing, and I am a, um, a guest host on False Flag Weekly News. Um, and so um, I, I, I stay on top of the news, and I, I send a lot of private um, information, constantly one-on-ones, which may be um, ultimately more productive Um Sometimes, maybe this is a little um, arrogant, I don't know, but sometimes I feel like I'm a consciousness raiser of the consciousness raisers. Um, just a little bit more ahead and trying to get the people who are leading people, wait a moment, here's the next level where you can take this. So thank you for asking. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I actually kind of came from like a similar sort of like philosophical background. I mean, back like when I was in college, I was very much into democracy. Now I would wake up like every day and watch that show. Like mm -hmm. first thing in the morning, I'd, I'd, I'd watch Amy Goodman. And back then she was having on Glenn Greenwald and Noam Chomsky and Jeremy Scahill and people like this. So it was, I was very like anti-war 
um, anti-U.S. empire, anti-Wall Street. Um, but I never really thought about 9-11 like you because they weren't really speaking critically about 9-11 anyways. Um, and once I r- realized that the official narrative of 9-11, the official conspiracy theory, was absolutely false, and not only false, but absolutely insulting to any critically thinking individual, I lost a lot of respect for those individuals, although they still do good work. I mean, I still watch Glenn Greenwald, for example, on uh, Rumble every once in a while, and, you know, he does good work. And, and uh, Democracy Now!, I haven't watched that show for a long time, but um, I, I just sort of, I, I guess, graduated <laughs> from that sort of limited, right. from that lim- limited hangout, so to speak. Um, that's not to say that they, they don't do good work, but, um, you know, they're, they're definitely not giving you the full story. And also, it just so happens that many of these individuals just so happen to be Jewish, and they are, are very um, hesitant to, to sort of get into th- that very controversial topic, you know, the, the nature of Jewish power and Zionist influence in the world. So um, anyways, that, that's to say that, you know, of course, you can you can get some truths from these individuals from this sort of progressive, uh, more alternative left, I guess, but you're not going to get the, the full story. And that's something that I quickly realized once I started researching 9-11. And I got to ask you um, one more sort of broad, sort of general question before we get into the, the main topic. What are your views on 9-11? I mean, first off, what led you to really start questioning the official 9-11 conspiracy theory? And what conclusions have you come to about that monumental game-changing event, which is now being compared to this Hamas attack on Israel that took place on October 7th. Right. Um, well, as I said, um, I was on um, in a hiatus um, in, in just cruising mode and not necessarily thinking about it because I was told um, it th- there's no there there. But um, it's an interesting how I came to it. I have a, a twin sister um, named Colleen, and she is a lawyer. Um, and we're, we're very close and she's even more political than I am. I'm kind of more the spiritual one and she's more the political one, but we're very close. And, um, we were, um, hiking in Turkey and, um, ended up, she had an accident. She fell 10 feet on bowling ball sized rocks and broke both of her ankles. So that was a whole huge story, but cut to the chase she was in a wheelchair all winter um couldn't run five miles every day like she used to so she had all this time in the world and she just started poking around looking around and then she started serving it up to me well what do you think of this what do you think of that and it's like oh i never thought of that and we both together um really explored totally deeply um JFK which we had never done either and JFK and 911 and we did that assiduously for several years to the point where I I I barely follow either of those now I I kind of keep dibs on them but I don't really follow them because I feel like um I I know them both inside out and there's other areas that I'm exploring deeply um almost wish I could um ha- go to college now and just study these new areas so I I am kind of doing that on my own I spend a lot of time researching but um what was I going to say about 911 oh so where I came to the conclusion to um, is a very controversial one that has gotten me in trouble is um, I actually had Chris Bolin come and speak. And um, Chris Bolin, of course, is the uh, he's an expat now. Um, and he 
um, he really wrote the book on um, Israel did 9-11. And I absolutely believe that it is an Israeli plot. And um, it, of course, in concert with the neocon Israeli firsters here in this country, Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld being the front-facing goyim, if you will, to uh, be able to sell it to the American public. But it was totally run, I believe, by Israelis, and they'd been planning it for a long time, since at least the 1979 um, Conference on Terrorism in Jerusalem um, that yeah, well was organized. So there's so many smoking guns if you open you know just open that door there is so much there it's evidence i am i I have no doubt at all so anybody saying this is the second 9-11 um my first uh, high level response to that is the whole reason for the original 9-11 is so that um they could have the 9-11 wars for israel take out all of israel's um enemies um we not only finance it for Israel, but we send our own troops in. But it didn't really do the job. So now it looks like Israel's getting to have their 9-11 wars for Israel 2.0 right in their own backyard where they can project manage it themselves and get that damn job done, you know, wipe out everybody, all everyone, and then they become regional hegemons. So that's the original reason that I came to of why they did 9-11 1.0. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Look, I completely agree with you. I've I've come to basically the same conclusion, and Christopher Bolin has been a huge influence on my thinking on the subject. His book is called Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World. He's also written a couple other books. I think one of them is basically just a collection of the original articles that he was writing for American Free Press newspaper, the newspaper that I contribute to and help edit. Um, and also Dr. Barrett is a regular columnist for the for the newspaper as well. Um, and at the time, like he was, he was covering this from the moment it happened, pointing out all these yeah. Israeli connections. And I mean, really, the evidence is just simply overwhelming and incontrovertible as yeah. to who was ultimately behind 9/11. Certainly, who benefited, what sort of, you know, political, foreign policy, geopolitical agenda it advanced. I mean, they were even writing public policy papers talking about the need for a new Pearl Harbor. And that's exactly what 9-11 was. I mean, again, the, the evidence is just simply overwhelming at this point. And I think, um, like, for example, when I was sort of involved, like when I first got involved in the 9-11 truth movement, um, there were a lot of people, including many people even in the San Diegans for 9-11 truth movement, who were very um, reluctant to sort of pursue this angle of research, despite how much evidence there was. I mean, it was still a very, very controversial and taboo topic, even among you know, people that ostensibly were more free thinking and critical thinkers, it was still a very, very taboo topic. And I think we've made a lot of progress, even within like the 9-11 truth movement, uh, simply because the evidence is just so overwhelming and, and so well documented. And, you know, it's not some random conspiracy theory we're making up. I mean, we're literally quoting directly from these people, you know, so I think we've made a lot of progress in that regard. And it's just, it's just um, one of those subjects that, I mean, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And the evidence is just simply overwhelming. If you're being honest and objective, there's really no other conclusion to come to. So that's very interesting. We have a lot of uh, a lot of overlap. It, it seems like in our sort of awakening to these issues, and mm-hmm. um, you know, in our, our interest in them in general. So um, I wanted to have you on to, to really kind of talk about this situation in occupied Palestine and this 
um, attack that Hamas launched against Israel on October 7th. There's been a lot of speculation, um, you, you know, people concluding that this was some sort of false flag operation or maybe Israel knew about it and let it happen in order to justify this brutal assault on Gaza and like the total ethnic cleansing of Palestine, which has really been a long running policy of the Israeli state since its founding. Um, and, and, and we're going to get into some of those topics as we proceed here. The first thing I wanted to bring up is, um, number one, uh, the, the potential for this conflict to quickly transition into a global conflict, you know, with the U.S. being involved, you know, getting involved, uh, Russia potentially getting involved. I mean, Russia has military bases in Syria. Of course, Iran is very active in the region. Um, so there's a, a huge potential to drag a lot of major superpowers and regional players into this conflict. And I'm actually looking at a report. This was published in Reuters on October 25th, so about a week ago. And the headline here is, Israel agrees to U.S. request to delay the Gaza invasion. And I, from what I understand, um, Israel has launched sort of very limited um, military operations into Gaza. Of course, they've been bombing it, you know, really since th this uh, October 7th attack. Um, but they haven't really launched like a full-scale invasion. And this article was, was pretty revealing in that regard. It says here that Israel has agreed to delay an expected invasion of Gaza for now so that the United States can rush missile defenses to the region to protect U.S. troops there, the Wall Street Journal reported on Wednesday, citing U.S. and Israeli officials. U.S. officials have also persuaded Israel to hold off until U.S. air defense systems can be placed in the region as early as next week. Israel is also taking into account in its planning the effort to supply humanitarian aid inside Gaza, as well as diplomatic efforts to free hostages held by Hamas militants, the news report said. Now, this follows a, another report that I read earlier this week uh, that was published by The Intercept about how the U.S. is quietly expanding a secret military base inside of Israel. Um, I don't know if you caught this report. Um, I should have sent it to you, actually, before we started recording. But, no, um, I knew it. Yeah, I knew that, yeah. that, okay. that I didn't see it in Intercept. I saw it elsewhere. Okay, yeah. The the basically it was a like a sort of a, a private, um, secret U.S. military base, uh, mm -hmm. being built in Israel. I think it's costing like forty million dollars. The code name is Site Five One Two, and it's basically, from what I understand, um, like it has like a, a a radar system to sort of detect any potential incoming missile attacks or drone attacks or whatever from from neighboring uh, countries. And um, again, it's sort of like just gearing up for a wider conflict that the U.S. is going to get dragged into at the behest of the state of Israel, which has a total stranglehold on our politicians in D.C., on our mass media apparatus, on the president in the White House itself. I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible the amount, you know, the, the levels of control that this foreign country has, this foreign government has over our domestic political system um, to the point where it's, yeah, it's like literally risking this, this massive world war. Go ahead. I'll, I'll let you respond to, to both these news stories. Yeah. Um, I, in terms of um, the um, U.S. Um, going into Israel and having their own private base, uh, yes, that happened. And then in January, the largest joint um, exercises took place in January, the largest exercises in Israel's history. So they've been gearing up towards this. I, I think our whole planet, it's almost like um, it's sort of astrological. Our, our, our whole planet, we're in a time of great shift. And that's what the Great Reset is about. 
And so um, it, it, it even a metaphysical level, it's time for our, our humanity, our species, big changes coming. So I think this is just a kind of a micro version of um, heightening the contradictions so that um, these things can happen. But um, in terms of um, the U.S.'s help, um, well, there's two things I would like to um, discuss the actual how valuable can U.S. be. Um, the pot is empty. We, you know, gave away the bank to Ukraine, which is another form of funneling it through um, the Rothschild Zionist Empire. Um, so we don't have much left and we know our military is half in skirts and half overweight. So whatever they're thinking that we're going to offer, um, it's not nowhere near what it used to be. But then Israel's army is not anywhere near what at least they hyped it up to be. So um, what we have are these um, um, deranged people. PNAC may have worked first to get us all excited about uh, a new Pearl Harbor, but between the confusion and the antagonisms going on within Israel and then the spiral downward, the death spiral that the U.S. is going through right now with illegal um, immigration, with uh, woke degeneracy, uh, massive um, inflation and just printing trillions of debt that we'll never be able to get out of, the, the two-tier justice system. The U.S. is is completely devolving at this point. So how strong an ally can we really be? We can put one of our big battleships there just waiting for a USS Liberty to happen uh, by Israel again so that we really do uh, keep our hooks in there. But um, so that's one of the problems is that um, I'm going to kind of cut cut to the end, but I do want to talk in between, is that basically if a, uh, if it, it looks very much like this is going to be a regional war, if not um, a World War III, poor uh, U.S. and Israel, uh, um, Europe doesn't have much, uh, they've already been soaked dry for Ukraine. There's not much on our end. So these people are uh, running this are they're deranged psychopaths. They don't even have the practicality of it all right there, and they're just outright lying now and bluffing, um, trying can, to gaslight us that there's no genocide going on. Yeah, can I, I let me just comment really briefly, and then and then I'll let you continue here. But it, it just goes to show like how totally disconnected from reality the vast majority of U.S. politicians and some of these. You know, high-profile leaders in the Biden administration, for example. I mean, Janet Yellen was being interviewed the other day, about a week ago or so, maybe two weeks ago at this point, where she was saying, "Oh yeah, of course we can afford to continue to funnel billions of dollars to Ukraine, and of course we can back Israel with the full weight of the U.S. Treasury and our military." I mean, these people are just so disconnected from reality. I think it's like 33 trillion dollars in debt the federal government is in. Yeah. I mean, who, who, how, who? On what planet is anybody even going to be able to pay that back? I mean, this is just unsustainable levels of debt. It's it's astronomical. It's out of control. And yet these people continue to insist that we have money for these disastrous wars that do not serve America's interests in the slightest. I mean, that's the thing. Like, they just literally will get up there and, as you said, gaslight the public into thinking that this is benefiting the U.S. in any way when we're sending trillions of dollars overseas to far-flung corners of the planet that are thousands of miles from the U.S. homeland. Meanwhile, our borders are open. You know, we're continuing to let in 
millions of illegal aliens and people with very dubious asylum claims and refugee claims. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous. Right. And I think they've overreached. You can only gaslight people so far. You can't gaslight people about genocide. People are seeing that. Now, in this country, in our bubble, in the West bubble, they're not seeing as much, but it's coming out strong enough. So many people are saying, I always supported Israel, but... You know, now, after, since October 7th, it's like, oh, that's when you're, you're waking up. But we are, as I was saying, we're going through massive wake-ups. And um, COVID um, derangement syndrome happened to a lot of people. But a lot of people also woke up. Um, similarly, um, I think we're going, if COVID was 1.0 of a, a massive opening up of people's consciousness and questioning what's going on, um, I think this is going to be uh, the 2.0, this whole um, Israeli concoction of this war that they're doing is a 2.0 of waking people up, which is really good. But I have a question um, that I'm wondering, and, and I would love to hear your response, is that, um, so, okay, we've we've got the diaspora. I truly believe that at this point in time, the 1%... Um, has been hijacked by the Jewish wing. So, um, yes, there's the 1%. We've got the Bushes. We've got the Rockefellers. But it's, it's, they're, they're all, they're no longer running it. Um, the, the Jewish wing of the 1% is now controlling the 1% at this point. And we've got data points to prove it. BlackRock. I mean, talk about a data point, third largest economy in the world who don't even have to abide by the first and second rules, um, the first and second countries that um, are bigger than BlackRock's GDP, if you will, and that's the U.S. and China, but they're countries. So they have to abide by stuff that BlackRock doesn't have to. I, I can go into other reasons of why I say that um, the um, I, you have to be more specific for people, because if you say Jewish, people freak out. I just had a long conversation in one of my study groups about we can't say the J word. You just can't because then people are like the ovens. Um, so really it right, is. Yep. The, it's really the um, Rothschild Zionist wing. But my question for you, because I've been pondering this, is so we have the diaspora, we have Israel, and we have the, the um, empire, the strongest hegemon, and that is in the U.S., but we're just zogged. I, it really irks me, almost angers me. It's constantly, U.S. is doing this, evil U.S. doing that. US. It's not us. We're zogged. Please stop. So so we have um, zog in the U.S. We have Israel, which is, it, it is the zog. Um, and then worldwide Jewry um, that has a stranglehold um, on basically three things. If you want to conquer the world, you got to own all the money. And who owns all the central banks and Wall Street? The second thing that you have to um, disproportionately own control or influence is the narrative. And that's more than the media. It's Hollywood. It's philosophy, psychology, advertising, PR, education, the textbooks, um, the publishing, all of how we think. So that's the second thing you have to control. And if you look at each of those domains, and, and you start putting Star of Davids around the faces and owners who disproportionately um, dominates the narrative. And then the third one, finally, which is allowing for anybody who can 
dominate those first two, the money and the narrative. Finally, now, um, if you have the first two, you can step up and own the technology. And the technology gives you the opportunity for censorship, uh, the social media propagandizing, and then, of course, um, surveillance. And, um, and and then now biofascist um, um, pharmaceutical and weaponry. So it, the whole ID passport. So my question is, who's really Zooming who? Is Israel commandeering us? Or is the, the Zog here in this country commandeering the rest of the world? Um, it, it, it's like, who's the junior partner? And I think for a long time, um, the uh, Rothschild Zionists worldwide was the junior partner, certainly of the robber barons back in the 1800s. But I would say definitively after 1913 and then 1963, 1913 being when, um, the whole, uh, uh, the, the, our, our, our money system changed, the Federal Reserve, um, and we know who did that. Nineteen, or excuse me, um, uh, ni- yeah, nineteen sixty-three, when uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. That was a a, a, a super watershed year. And then definitively after two thousand and one, I believe now we are the junior partners of Rothschild Zionism. Oh, yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I mean, yeah, and, and it really, it's not even a secret anymore. I mean, it really hasn't been a secret for generations at this point. I would argue, yeah, like 1913, pro- probably that was like the year that sealed America, America's fate. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, really, there, there were so many events that happened in 1913 alone, just that one year. I mean, that was when the ADL was created. That was when the income tax was, was enacted. That was when U.S. senators were elected um, by popular vote. That was when the Federal Reserve was created. I mean, there were many, many very, very monumental changes that took place in that year, paving paving the way for this Jewish takeover. Yeah. Well, also the cost to get us in to uh, World War One. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was exactly that that was unfolding at at the time. Um, And I mean, you, you know, you even look at like the Roosevelt administration, for example, I mean, totally controlled by communist agents, frankly. I mean, basically, yeah. they were communist agents. Many of them were Jewish. Some of them were not. But um, overwhelmingly, they were absolutely enemies of America. And this has only sort of continued. And now, really, it's like total mask off. I mean, look at the Biden administration itself. You talked about the reality of Jewish power in this country. Like, I mean, every single major position in his cabinet is controlled by a Jew. Right. And you can go on, like, the Jewish Telegraph Agency or the Times of Israel or the Jewish Daily Forward and find articles where they're literally, like, just openly documenting these facts and boasting about it, you know? And then if you were to notice it, the Anti-Defamation League would denounce you as a crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist for recognizing the reality. That's the level of gaslighting we're dealing with these days. Exactly. And but you said everybody knows it, but they don't. It's because, well, from The Art of War by Sun Shu, uh, to paraphrase him, if you can't ID who your bottom line enemy is, either because you have been censored or mind controlled, so it's a fog, you're occluded, um, or out of fear or whatever, if, if you're not IDing who your bottom line enemy is, if you're not, if you can't do that, you're, you're not looking into the psychology of who you're going against. So if you can't do that, then 
how are you going to defend yourself, let alone take them out? You have to understand who you're dealing with before you can even have a plan. Whenever there's a problem, you have to first define the problem. Then you can figure out solutions. If we can't talk about who really is at the tip top of the food chain that's directing all this, and that's what I was saying, who took over the 1%, at least in the West, then um, how can you really take it out? You're just kind of like blindingly striking out if you even get to, because not only have we been so um, shut down that we can't talk about it, but many people have been um, self-recused that can't, won't even allow themselves to think about opening that door. Yeah. No, and, and I look, I agree with you, and I th- I don't know if maybe I misspoke or if you misunderstood me. I, I This is like the, the elephant in the room that we're just incapable as a society of, of talking about openly. Um, I, you yeah. know, I, I think it's it's very obvious. It's no secret. I mean, again, you can like very easily document all these facts, including from Jewish sources themselves. But it's, you know, like the one topic that we just can't have an adult conversation about. And I think that's largely because of the fake history of World War II. This very emotional, traumatizing, MK Ultra style propaganda that we're subjected to about the alleged Holocaust from the moment we're, you know, five or six years old. You know what I mean? Right. It's it's very, very traumatizing and very, very manipulative and deceptive yeah. and exploitative, rendering the vast majority of people simply incapable, incapable of even entertaining any alternative, you know? Right. And our leaders are just whether it's in the media or the politicians nobody will go past that glass ceiling or to use another metaphor go off the reservation and one way we're seeing its manifestation now is you cannot talk about anything in support of Palestine or anything at all the the first thing that has to come out of your mouth is an outright um uh, almost screed denunciation of Hamas so yeah, and like um, Kim Iverson has been doing really good work. Now she's I'd call her alt mainstream, but she's been doing really good work. But like she, uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Colonel McGregor, they all have to first say, even Scott Ritter, well, Hamas is evil and they did a massacre and they butchered. And once you say that, maybe then you can give some uh, talking points about how um, you can't say Hamas did anything good. You can talk well, about their strategy or anything. but And that's that's a part of um, the, the shutting down of the ability to talk about Rothschild Zionist Jewish power that's happening. That's just one manifestation we're experiencing right now. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I want to actually get into that because I have been very, very skeptical about these atrocity tales coming out of Israel said to be committed by Hamas. I mean, Israeli leaders are openly calling the Palestinians and Hamas in particular barbarians and terrorists and animals. Um, You know, there have been Israeli leaders directly quoted as saying that there is no such thing as an innocent civilian in Gaza because they, you know, they elected Hamas and they put up with Hamas, this, you know, alleged terrorist group, which I think is a, a very... Um, inaccurate characterization of this organization. Um, I'm actually looking at an article here. This is uh, from the Jewish Telegraph Agency that was just published on the 30th of October, where Netanyahu is the, the headline here: Netanyahu rejects calls for ceasefire and resignation as he calls war against Hamas battle of civilization against barbarians. Now, I've seen all sorts of report, recent reports, in, in fact, 
um, and this is something that's been going on for a very long time in Israel, in the Holy Land, of these little Jewish Orthodox kids and, and you know other Orthodox Jewish Israelis literally spitting on Christians, harassing and violently attacking Christians and Muslims and, and, and other non-Jews in the region. This is pretty barbaric if you ask me. This is not civilized behavior. And yet they literally just reverse the situation. And I'm curious, like, what do you make of this? And we can, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more when we talk about Dr. Barrett's article. What do you make of this Hamas incursion into Israel? I do, frankly, have a lot of questions about it. I mean, I, I, I have a very hard time believing that Israel simply didn't know this was coming or didn't have some sort of inkling that something like this was bound to happen. But I also have a lot of questions about what actually happened. And I don't even know if we actually do know what happened. I mean, I have, I, I certainly don't think that 40 babies were beheaded in some kibbutz right outside the Gaza Strip. I think that's total nonsense, frankly, insulting, just ridiculous, absurd, you know, Holocaust level type atrocity propaganda. Um, I have a hard time believing, you know, there were mass rapes and other grisly and brutal murders and stuff like that. I don't, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering like what exactly did happen? And do you think this was some sort of like false flag or some sort of like let it happen on purpose type operation? What's your overall take on it? Um, well, it has been confusing. For one, we don't really have um, good data coming out because almost everything we get in the West is coming from um, the IDF itself. So uh, we can't believe that data. For example, um, the hostages that were um, taken, um, not the ones that were brought back to Gaza, but the um, during the, um, the, the whole act of the attack, um, it wasn't until later that it came out that most of them were killed not by evil, brutal Hamas. They were killed by Israelis themselves because of the Hannibal um, doctrine. Do you know what the Hannibal Directive? Do you know what that is? Have you seen that? Um, yeah, I actually saw that referenced, I think, in Dr. Barrett's article that I mentioned just a few moments ago. But yeah, and, I, and I've seen some of the interviews with some of the survivors and also former like Israeli military people who were saying that, um, you know, just people that were there like at that rave or that concert or whatever that they said, you know, Hamas showed up and like murdered all these people. Apparently it sounds like anyways, a lot of these people that did die, if, if they, you know, if, assuming we can believe this, um, a lot of the people that did actually die, died as a direct result of the crossfire between Israeli fighters and Hamas, you know, during this whole chaotic situation. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a hard time believing the, like, the official Israeli narrative, certainly. And um, I have no doubt that, like, Israel's policy, this Hannibal policy, which maybe you can elaborate on, I mean, basically, my understanding is that they just, when it comes to dealing with any sort of threat, they have no regard for civilians, you know, whatever. It's like a, like essentially a free-for-all for the military, right? Is that, is that um, sort of well, accurate? Kind of. It's, it's actually their policy that if um, any Israeli um, or any Jewish person is uh, taken hostage, um, they're going to consider them collateral damage because they don't want to have to um, um, negotiate any kind of exchange whatsoever. So they're willing to... Uh, um, let their to, to even kill their own people, and that's what was happening. Is that you, it, what we're kind of hearing? A best case scenario: Oh, it was just a crossfire, free for all that was happening. Well, yes and no. Um, maybe some aspects of it, maybe at the raid, but at settler communities, those communities were so taken out in ways that could only have been like a hellfire missile 
or the kind of heavy artillery that the Israelis had, certainly not the Kalishnikovs, could just like blow up um, entire homes and just leave them like burnt to a crisp as if missiles had just hit them. That that would not have been uh, Palestinian work. So clearly the Hannibal directive was at play, and that is the policy that you kill the enemy, Hamas, no matter what, even if you have your own hostages in there. And so they purposely killed their own people. And they've done this before throughout history, really. They have sacrificed their own people in order to get the enemy, no matter what. So that's created quite a bit of um, anger within the populace itself that already had a lot of anger against Netanyahu um, for um, the, the legal, the, the, their, their, their uh, country is really divided. Lots of hatred um, against the extreme right-wing settlers of which Netanyahu is a part of, and then the kind of more liberal European um, um, Israelis who don't necessarily want this kind of war, but is still happy enough when it was uh, Gaza was just um, going along status quo level. Why would Bibi do this? So that kind of segues us into was it a lie hop, a my hop, some kind of false flag? For people who don't know, lie hop mean this is from 9/11. Did they just let it happen? So let it happen on purpose, lie hop. Or did they make it happen on purpose? Were they commandeering and directing it? So um, uh, there's been a lot of confusion from people who believe in the complete um, invulnerability, um, beyond invulnerability, um, the, the primacy, the omnipotence of um, the Israeli military um, and their surveillance systems. I was just listening to Scott Ritter, who had a fabulous uh, interview, and he's saying that's all a lie. Because Scott's my go-to man. After Ukraine, he's on my pedestal. He knows his military stuff. And he actually um, was with, I lived in Israel for, I think, a year and a half and was with the intel agencies there. He's had a firsthand look. And if anybody is there to say, oh, I always supported Israel, but now after this, he's like done a 180 almost. But anyway, um, he has been saying how um, that Israel's military is not what it's cracked up to be. They've been gaslighting us. They're very good at that. They, that's why they own advertising and PR. They know how to the Freud, they know how to work the perception management very well. And Scott Ritter and um, Gilad Atzman and Kevin Barrett are three of the strongest voices saying, no, this wasn't a false flag. Um, the, the mighty um, Hamas military, the disciplined military forces that Hamas has, were able to pull this off. And that they're going to be talking in military circles. People are going to be talking for years in military circles about this extraordinary coup and what they did with what little they had. So, and so I'm, I haven't really read Kevin's article yet, but I was the one who said to him, Kevin, please, we people don't understand because they so believe in the primacy of the Israeli military. And if you believe that, then it, Yes, it's impossible. Very early on, we had a woman um, IDF soldier get on. A cockroach couldn't pass that border without um, us knowing. We immediately knew. Well, maybe they had uh, TMI or supposedly they 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 kind of knew, but they didn't. But no matter what, this is 
this is kind of just an ongoing MO. It's constantly the MO when they did Protective Edge, when they did, um, what was the other, Cast Iron, the, these invasions. Cast Lead, that, yeah. Cast Lead, thank you. These invasions that um, Israel has done, they've always been preceded by uh, poking and, and doing something that would just like enough is enough. And often it's been around um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that's what preceded this one. But Israel always wants you to start at the point of the Palestinians did this to us, as opposed to, well, wait a moment, what was your behavior? What did you do to precipitate this? And this is just probably the 120th time that we have the same scenario. Israel do something to get them agitated so then they can go the, mow the lawn and go after them again. And now they're ready because times are heightened. There are lots of massive changes in the world going on right now with the Great Reset, these fake pandemics. And so um, Israel also knows when they want to take advantage. Um, I was reading somewhere people were saying, Israelis were saying, this is a good opportunity for us. They're, we're going to go for it now. And I think they've miscalled it. I think they've finally overreached, and I think Israel is going down. That doesn't mean there's not going to be Israelis um, existing in Israel, but I even think it might. This whole thing might actually topple uh, the, if not the U.S., even Jewish power. I think it because they're they're they're. It, the inevitable result is World War III if Israel doesn't stop bombing. And I don't know if you know, but just a couple hours ago, Ye Yemen is saying, we're going to bomb Israel. Because that's what I was saying to um, on False Flag uh, Weekly News on Friday. It's like, they're not going to do a land invasion. Israel isn't going to do a land invasion. They don't have the capabilities. We don't have the capabilities to help them. Why should they? All they have to do is just keep bombing and bombing, and nobody wants World War III. So, oh, the land invasion. Why is that all the be-all, end-all, when bombing is actually has the ability to kill more people and just keep the onslaught going and going? When When is Hezbollah going to fire some missiles? And yay, today, Yemen is saying we're going to fire missiles. Now, I don't want missiles fired. I don't want it escalated. But what we're dealing with is um, uh, the neocons, the Netanyahu's, they're like a drunken man with, um, instead of a gun, a nuke in their hand. And so everybody's kind of dancing around. Certainly China and Russia, who after, after it goes from um, the Palestinians to Hezbollah to Iran, inevitably you're going to have especially Russia, but also China too. And there you got your World War III. But also, I would contend from our side, we're like, okay, how are we going to um, talk down this deranged psychopath? And so it was very weird. If you'll recall, maybe they're still even going. Um, we sent Blinken, then... Um, Joe Biden went, um, Macron went, um, oh, who's Sunni Riki, what, what the guys, uh, the PM. Richie uh, Sunak, yeah, from, from the UK. Yeah, yep. he went. We had Ursula von der Leyen go. Um, Austria sent somebody to the Israelis. Czechoslovakia sent someone. In Italy sent someone. Since when, especially during a time of great conflict verging on war, do all the major heads of state go to Israel, go go to the, the site of it. 
I believe, well, the press told us they all went for support. And obviously, Bibi then put on his Zelensky hat and held out his hand and said, I want all the money you got. He doesn't have to say much because his brethren are sitting over there um, at the money printer and treasury and at the State Department. The top three of them are all uh, uh, Jewish. So, uh, But I think from around the world or the, the Western leaders went also from our end to try to talk down. Don't do this. You don't want to do this. You, you can't do it because you don't have the capabilities. We in the West shot our wad in Ukraine. We barely have it. Don't do this. But I think um, it's a form of going for broke because as long as this war keeps going, Netanyahu doesn't have to face the home front of the problems he was having. But also it's kind of a grandiose suicide by cop because the whole world is looking at you've got to stop this genocide. And he's like he's coming out with Netanyahu's coming out with pistols and both uh, hands just coming out and just doing the genocide and the bombing. It's like then just, you know, the Masada complex kind of thing. Just if we can't have it, we're going to go down fighting and bring everybody with us. And and so the cops of the world, um, um, Putin was like the cop in Ukraine, uh, tried to do a humane stop doing what you're doing. Um, and he was like a suicide by cop, 500,000 Ukrainians. That was suicide. Uh, it's like a suicide by cop that we're facing because we have this, these deranged psychopaths who are not just in Israel. It's not just Bibi and the, the unhinged settlers. Um, as Laurent, these pe these people know, are running DC. Yeah. But as Laurent, but more than that, right. But it's beyond Beyond even the the high leadership, as Laurenti, you know, the um, he wrote um, from Yahweh to Zion, master um, um, analyst of the Jewish people. Um, he came out and said, and not in a bitter, mean way, but just factually, um, there's a psychopathy to these people at all levels, and you kind of see it coming out now. A dear friend of mine, highly spiritual very politically progressive. And she was extremely angry with me because I didn't reach out for her hurt and pain. And look what they're doing to Israel, to my people. It's like, oh my God, there's this inner psychopathy. And Kevin Barrett's excellent article um, in the title, it talks about foreskin, but basically it's um, circumcision at 3000 years of, um, of mind control, the epigenetic kind of um, psychology that's going on with these people has turned into psychopathy that the world doesn't know what to do with. And yet they are able, as a successful psychopath, um, they're able through sweet talking, gaslighting, whatever, to get control of all the choke points. And then what can you do? And so many of them don't even realize because they've been sweet talked and Right, the charm and stuff, or in this case, victimhood has been sold down our throats. So we're, they've kind of got us out of a, all over a barrel, but they've overreached. They can't. They can't win this war. The whole world is against them outside of the West. They have no more money. They have no more um, weaponry. It's it, it. The wad has been shot, and the world hates them. So. Right, I, I, and it's and, and yeah. it's yeah no I think you're making a lot of good points and it's interesting how all of this follows this whole Ukraine debacle, which mm -hmm. and, and and one thing I mean I've been sort of like 
very interested in this whole idea of like a multipolar world order and the rise oh, of – Oh, me too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The rise of like China and Russia as alternative counterweights to, to the, the unipolar world order, which has largely been in place since World War II. Yes. Where America and the Jews that run the American government are basically dictating to the world how things are going to be and invading countries left and right over, you know, based on total lies, you know, to advance certain interests in the Middle East or just around the world. Um, so it's, it's an interesting concept. I do have a lot of questions about it because I think there, there is like a very real deep state like in Russia itself, also in China. I mean, just in any country, there's a deep state. There's globalist forces working behind the scenes to undermine the nation and i think that is also the case in some of these other countries like russia and china but a lot of the rhetoric that we hear from putin and lavrov and some of the other russian leaders and the chinese for that matter is very interesting very intriguing much more legitimate much more sane than anything you hear from anybody in dc and it's sort of interesting how like i mean the whole situation in ukraine with Russia's decision to finally, you know, launch this special military operation, is 100% the fault of U.S. foreign policy. The Probably. same thing, the same thing could be said about the situation in Israel. Yep. It, this is 100% the fault of U.S. foreign policy being so pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist. You know, in in for the longest time, like the U.S. has tried to portray itself as like this, you know. Um, you know, neutral moderator of this conflict, you know, trying to come up with a diplomatic solution. Now, how can you maintain that farcical image when you have a whole of this guy, Tony Blinken going over there, invoking his Jewishness, invoking the Holocaust as he's literally sitting in like the Israeli war cabinet talking about how they're going to like invade Gaza. I mean, give me a break. This is not even, this is insulting to people in Russia, to people in China, to people in Africa, to people in South America, to people across the entire world. They're seeing this and, and, and seeing it for what it is. This is just blatant um, criminality on the part of the West. And, and, and of course, what's happening in, in Israel, as I mentioned, is totally facilitated and backed and, 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 and a direct result of, of, of U.S. foreign policy in the region. Right. And all the top people, as you said, running the U.S. foreign policy are all of Jewish descent. I mean, more or less, it's that's not an exaggeration. I mean, Victoria Newland, Anthony Blinken, Wendy Sherman, who actually just retired, I believe. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these top people. And then, of course, you got to look at like the broader like foreign policy establishment, the think tanks in Washington, D.C. and the talking heads, the people that write for The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal and, and you know, The Washington Post. And look at their ethnic background. Many of them, especially the more neoconservative warmonger types, are in fact Jewish. They have strong loyalties to Israel. They have strong, you know, Zionist affiliations and a desire to see Israel rule the Middle East. Well, beyond that, this is that's just regional hegemony. I think they want to rule the world. They they're the chosen people and I really do believe that this new world order that's coming together, they had um, their uh, sights on being, well, it's basically um, a continuation of the Bolshevik Revolution um, and the Soviets. Um, we have become the Soviet Union now. We have all the censorship, the secret police, the um, political imprisonment, um, 
And so what they didn't expect, this is part of the overreach, is that brewing because they're they're not they're not that smart. They they make us think. Even Einstein was a PR concoction. I'm not saying he wasn't smart, but he was not the smartest. Um, and a lot of um, what he did was um, um, plagiarized. He sat absolutely in, yep. in Switzerland. So in any event, they they have the cunning to be able to get in the right place and and go after the choke point, squeeze squeeze the ball, so to speak. But they don't they're they're too emotionally uh, full of revenge and negative energy that they they can't see straight. And so what they have actually done just so so certain that they were going to take out evil Russia, their biggest enemies, not realizing that um, Russia um, had its own agenda. Putin kicked out most of them, most of the Jewish billionaires, but also many others um, for a long, um, early on, fairly early on. And so that's partly why we have the Ukraine war, is because they're, the anger that they got kicked out of Russia. The whole point of the Ukraine war is to balkanize Russia so that then they can go after um, all of her resources. And now they're also, they've got their hooks into China. I have... We could do a whole show on multipolar versus unipolar. I have so much to talk about that, of the direction we're going in and its consequences, but we're seeing it now. It's coming to a head. It's it, it's meant to be because they they can't stop themselves. They right. Can't well, and stop. yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And and like the more as more time goes on, the more the world sees and and even the American public to a large extent recognizes how just totally disconnected from reality these people are um i mean you know i i could provide example after example i mean these people just get up and tell the biggest lies and it's like I, do they actually believe this or are they just is this just a pr campaign it's hard to tell i think a lot of them actually genuinely believe this crap that they say it's just right, so it's just so outrageous believe, yeah, yeah and, and so it's like lies. they're yeah it's like they're like shooting themselves in the foot and their own hubris and their own arrogance and their own delusion is going to ultimately result in their downfall, which, frankly, I see as a good thing. I mean, America has been just a blight on the world really since World War II, even before World War II, I would argue, at least from a foreign policy perspective. The American people, on the other hand, are some of the best people you will meet in the world, but our government is run by these evil monsters, um, many of whom are not even American in a genuine sense. <laughs> as, or dual citizens. Right, right, exactly. Well, the, so, okay done is figured out how to weaponize our kindness and our willingness to follow orders, um, go by rule of law. And they've used woke as um, one of their premier ways to break us down so that they can take control. And we're not even near finished seeing that if South Africa is the template for where they want this uh, white supremacist agenda to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I'll tell you what. There's a couple other uh, t topics or like news items I wanted to get to before we kind of wrap up here. Okay. One, um, one. This has been, I mean, really sort of a major theme since this whole conflict broke out. I mean, uh, you know, at least this, this more, um, this this modern version of the conflict. This conflict's been going on since the founding of the state of Israel, right. but really since October seventh. Um, we, we keep hearing from groups like the Anti-Defamation League and even, you know, leading U.S. political figures about the rise in anti-Semitism since this 
conflict broke out. And here's an article I just found today from, the, again, the Jewish Telegraph Agency. The White House convenes meeting to address spike in campus anti-Semitism during the Israel-Hamas war. And it was spearheaded by Kamala Harris's Jewish husband, Douglas Emhoff. And, of course, we had Deborah Lipstadt, who is the amb- yeah. ambassador, like the, the – on- what is she, the, her official title, the – Something like special envoy. Yeah, Yeah, to combat anti-Semitism. And of course, they have a whole slew of the top, you know, Jewish leaders. In fact, here's here. Okay, so this was uh, these are the Jewish officials that attended this meeting, which was uh, organized by the White House, by the Department of Education. And it it included William Daroff, the CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Sheila Katz, the National Council of Jewish Women CEO, of course, Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League, Eric Fingerhut, the Jewish Federations of North America CEO, Adam Lehman, the CEO of Hillel International, and Nathan, Nathan Diamond, the Washington Director of the Orthodox Union. And of course, the, these are the priorities of the federal government, uh, is quote-unquote combating anti-Semitism on college campuses and on social media. Never mind the Palestinians. Eight, I think it's 8,000 of them who have been murdered since this conflict yeah. broke out. Meanwhile, they claim 1,400 Israelis died. I don't even know if that's true, frankly. It's down to 900 now. Right. Well, and, and again, who even knows? I mean, may, I, I don't even. I'm, I'm not convinced that that many died. Anyways, may, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I just have a hard time believing anything coming out of these people, given the the brazenness in which they lie. Um, But this is the priority of of the Biden White House, of the mass media, of many politicians um, in Congress. In fact, one of the first resolutions that the most recently elected House Speaker put forth was a total backing of Israel, a total condemnation of Hamas and the Palestinian people, basically, um, and, and, you know, pledging full support for Israel. Um, so these are the priorities of the U.S. federal government. It's absolutely disgraceful. Well, people have no idea how much money these people actually have because um, they have gained our system so deeply in so many bowels and reaches in terms of um, taking us to the cleaners. So they have massive amounts of money, our money. Um, the, the money laundering through Ukraine was just a more visible way. There are so many agencies, white collar crime. And so it, the reason I bring that up is because they have this agency, that agency, this nonprofit, that nonprofit. Anything happens, they've got like five, ten different groups to come at you because they're all getting funded. So, you know, we think that, oh, it's just the, 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 the oligarchs of this demographic. But no, all of their money filters down to their people. No other uh, group, um, ethnic group, no other ethnic group's oligarchs have such loyal foot soldiers as the Jewish people do. All the way down the line, you say anything about a Rothschild or a Soros, they'll all go after you. Because there's this identification. If you say something about Rockefeller or the Bushes, I'm I'm not going to say, how dare you say something about my people? I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Um, right. But so what, what is going on is that now what they're doing with this 
in the um, the White House, they have like these 200 points, and it's a PR strategy to fight anti-Semitism, and it's the sister of an even more dangerous um, kind of law they're trying to get passed. It's called the, it, the IHRA, um, which is uh, another one of their groups, is putting out the definition of anti-Semitism, and there's these 11 points now. Do you know what I'm talking about, John? Yeah, are you referring to the the national strategy to combat anti-Semitism that was formulated just earlier this summer? I, I've been covering it and talking about it and writing about it since it really was was launched, and it was again organized by Douglas Emhoff and in the Biden White House um, at the highest levels. I mean, they're form right. they, they call it a whole of government approach to right. combat anti-Semitism. Oh yeah, yeah, I've been following it. Well, that's just one angle. Preceding that has been an international campaign to define what is anti-Semitism and going around to see who will sign on. The United Nations signed on. The entire country of Canada has signed on. When I first started looking into this about a year or two ago, there were five states that signed on, a proclamation or the order of the governor or something. Now there's 30 states. And just like they did with BDS, it starts with – and the Balfour Agreement. It starts with a proclamation, a word. We offer our support. And then the next thing you know, before you know it, it becomes law. They can criminalize it, legislate it into fines or prison. And you, ha you have to see it. It's, it's called the, um, the IHRA, International Holocaust Remembrance Association, is the flagship um, organization that's going around that is just this the preceding sister of what you've been finding in the White House with this strategy they're doing. So in other words, the 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 definition is even worse. You can't say anything. Our entire conversation will be illegal. You can't say against any group, um, Jews as a group or any Jew individually that they're trying to control the world, that they um, own all the money, that they control the media. You say that and you can be put in – what they're getting toward is to put people in prison, uh, just like Europe. Yeah. I know, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are people I, – I know people who have been um, in prison in Europe for Holocaust crimes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. Me too. I know plenty of them. Um, and the thing is is they want to make it illegal to – I mean either criticize Jews as Jews or even just recognize basic facts about them and state them publicly. Right. I mean that's ultimately what this boils down to. This is like total – like even worse than like any sort of tyranny George Orwell came up with in 1984. It's absolutely right. shocking and yeah, so most people wouldn't even know about it. You, you said everybody knows, but John, they don't. Oh, no, 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 no. I, no I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's – they're not making it a secret, but most most people do not know about this. Right, they can't read behind, read through, connect the dots, and read through the 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 small print to understand what it's about. And really, what we're going through, they can call it a farce, a hoax, or a fraud as much as they want. But this is the protocols of the elders of Zion. And 1984 was fiction, but boy, it sure seems real. Well, the same with that book too. If you read it, it's like, wow, this sure is the template of what they're doing right now. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Um, well, you know, one other thing I wanted to bring up, um, and, and you can, I'm sure you can speak to this considering your, um, your activism, you're, you're heavily involved in organizing protests and things of this nature. Um, there have been a lot of very large protests for the Palestinians that have 
largely been either ignored or sort of downplayed in the mass corporate media. Um, I'm looking at an article here from the Jewish Telegraph Agency, once again, my favorite news source. Hundreds arrested at New York City's Grand Central Station as pro-Palestinian rallies take place across the globe. And in the most recent issue of American Free Press, we actually had a special report on the situation in Palestine. And one of the articles that I contributed to that report was dealing with the massive protest in Washington, D.C., organized by two Jewish groups, actually, one of them, if not now, and then a second one, Jewish Voice for Peace. And they, like, surrounded the White House. They went in and, you know, sort of, like, occupied the Capitol building. I don't know why that wasn't described as an insurrection. If what happened on January 6th was an insurrection. Exactly. um, You know, of course, you see the double standards when it comes to that. But anyways, Mm -hmm. there have been a number of very big protests um, even in the town that I live in, I've, I've seen um, pro-Palestine protests, uh, people on the street with signs saying they support Palestine. Um, I actually just read a very good article from a website that most people probably would think would be the last one that I would be reading, but I do actually like the reporting, and that's the World Socialist website. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it kind of kind of shows my uh, my sort of like left-wing progressive roots, I guess, in, in, in all of this. Um, and this was an article that was published just a couple days ago. Corporate media censors mass protests against Israeli genocide in Gaza. And, you know, there have been protests all over the U.S. and, and you know, most major cities, um, including, as I mentioned, many protests organized by explicitly Jewish organizations. So um, there's a lot of people that are seeing through this propaganda, I think. Um, true. Um, These protests have been terribly um, maligned, and then you get the the billionaires from Harvard who are taking their money away because uh, you can't have the students speak out. Nikki Haley is saying that um, you have to shut down, censor the the universities. They shouldn't be able to speak out. So even though these protests are happening, what they're – zeroing in on is uh, any kind of violence they could possibly find, which most of it is probably concocted. Um, And it's all to say, see how violent and terroristic um, anything to do with Palestine is. Um, So it it may be getting, inching its way into the mainstream media that these uh, protests are happening, but it's it's generally um, told in a negative light. But I'd like to just point out another thing. Um, I'm grateful to Jewish Voice for Peace and um, the other one you mentioned. Um, what was the other one? If um, if not now. Now, and, and I should say, right. I, I frankly don't really support either of these organizations. I mean, obviously, I totally support the Palestinians in this conflict. And I think that, you know, these protests are – I have no problem with them. But these are very, very far left, um, sort of radical type organizations uh, that have very um, anti-American, anti-white, I would say, sort of political agendas. So I, I, I will say that, although I sort, I, I support like their protests against Israel and you know America's blind support for Israel. I'm not like a a, a, a big supporter of either of these organizations. Right, me neither. Um, they're part of the woke left, and um, I, I've been opposed to almost everything the woke left is doing. Um, I, I was at the uh, back in the um, early 90s. Um, I had similar agenda, but what they've done is they've warped and weaponized uh, racism, feminism, uh, gender, 
um, such that now um, it, it's, it's nothing like what um, we, I thought it was when I was an activist um, for those uh, very causes. Um, but so there's that whole uh, woke left stuff that I agree with you on um, is part of my split. And I'm no longer I'm a leftist who left the left. But also, I'd like to throw in another angle of it. And it's parodying um, um, Gilad Otsman, who calls groups like um, um, JVP, Jewish Voices for Peace, um, anti-Zionist Zionists. And um, what he means by that is that they're opposed to Zionism, but they're really Zionists themselves. Would they be opposed if Israel was not at risk? It's more for their own good, They because they try to control the whole pro-Palestinian um, support group. They, they, they have to control it. Why are you trying to control um, this group? And somebody like Alison Weir, who's probably one of the most uh, incredible activists uh, for Palestine, but I just... I revere her. She's, she's an extraordinary, uh, calm, uh, measured, even-keeled activist, fair, and um, they they tried to malign her as anti-Semitic. This is this is uh, JVP and also people like um, Max Blumenthal. I mean, he's like just been superb on Israel. But the minute you take it out of Zionism and start talking about Jewish power, believe you me, he's going to call he's going to be the first in line to call you an anti-Semite. Yes, and that's something that again that I recognized very quickly when I sort of started researching 9/11, all these people that say all these great things um, about the wars, about US foreign policy, about the nature of the state of Israel and its genocidal agenda, as soon as you really get to the heart of the matter and that is of course Jewish power and influence in America and the wider western world, they, as you mentioned, they will be the first to attack you as an irrational anti-Semite. And again, right. a guy like Max Blumenthal, I mean, he's Jewish. Um, a lot of these people, in fact, are Jewish. And I think that their Jewish identity is fundamentally um, sort of skewing their views on these topics. Yes. Yeah. Even when they're radical, revolutionary, sometimes even doing the things I actually like. Net, net, our biggest problem in the world right now is... Um, the Rothschild Zionist uh, world jewelry who want to control the world. And they they hollowed out, they destroyed Russia, Bolshevikism, communism. Um, whenever you hear those, the Soviets, that's not Russia. That's not Slavic people. That was all Jewish controlled. So after they were finished with that, they moved into Europe, had two world wars. They, they spearheaded those world wars. It's, oh, how could they possibly? Yes. And then after they um, destroyed Europe, basically, then they moved on to us. And now they practically hollowed us out. And now they have their eyes on China. And that gets into the whole multipolar, unipolar world. I, I, that's the conversation that I find most exciting because I think um, there's uh, promise there. A couple years ago, I didn't see any promise because um, I, I saw who the, the, psych, the, the psychopaths who were moving into control of the new world order. But now it's not like we're not going to have a new world order. Um, it's moving towards digital IDs, CBDCs. But I do believe that the new world order that's happened will probably happen in the multipolar world will be a kinder, gentler new world order. Whereas here it's going to be a psychopathic new world order and poor us. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And I'll tell you what, we're going to have to do this again and we can talk maybe all about that 
um, it, you know, it, the next time. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that subject, and I'm still sort of fleshing them out myself and, and entertaining different perspectives, different ideas about it. But more or less, I do tend to agree with you, and at the very least, the rhetoric we hear from people like Putin and Xi Jinping in China and some of these other leaders associated with the BRICS alliance is much more rational, much more fair and just than anything, anything you will hear from people like Joe Biden or Anthony Blinken or any of these other, frankly, psychopaths running the U.S. federal government. That's for sure. Yep, absolutely. Yes, I would love to have a conversation. We need one. We need, as as Westerners uh, held hostage, um, we're occupied uh, by the, the this unipolar, uh, basically, um, the, the, the we're, we're zogged. Um, we need to be fleshing this out to understand what kind of alliances we can make with the multipolar world and how to break through the zogged unipolar um, control that they have over us. Yes, well said. Well, Kat, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. This was a great conversation, as I knew it would be. And yeah, we'll stay in touch. We'll have to do this again. Keep up the great work, both on your Substack page and in your activism in New York City and other places, I'm sure. And also the work that you do with Dr. Kevin Barrett, a colleague of mine with American Free Press. So, um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And we'll stay in touch. And, yeah, we'll have another conversation um, and talk more about the whole multipolar world order. I think that'll be an interesting conversation for sure. Yes, I'd love it. Okay, thank you, John. Take care. Okay, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.